0: Hey, welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. My name is Chris Spangle. Thank you so much for being here. We've got an exciting show for you today. We're talking to Chris Becks of the Remnant Trust. You can go to one of their events and hold a book from, like, the 1400s, an original Magna Carta manuscript. Really cool organization that shares a lot of our values. So stay tuned for this interview with Chris Becks right after these messages. Chris, it's great to uh, see you again. We met briefly at Rex Bell's birthday party and uh, had a drive-by hello, and I'm so glad that you reached out to me because the Remnant Trust is something that I wanted to know about for a long time, that I'm uh, really fascinated by the, the collection that you have and the mission that you have, but why don't we start with the Remnant Trust? What is its history? What is it about? Give us your mission statement first and then kind of how you got to where you're at now
1: sure um i'll give you kind of a clip notes of the the mission statement it's about a paragraph but um our our mission is to elevate people's understanding and the educational ideals as they um, are connected to the ideas of liberty and dignity so the remnant trust is uh, well it's 25 years old this year as far as officially uh you know when we started doing our mission uh was in uh, 97 and We started with an idea of the great book series from uh, University of Chicago that we would focus on the ideas of liberty and dignity, that we would find the top hundred works that deal with those subjects in the history of man, so to speak.
0: Well, let's stop there because you've reached one of my passion projects. Uh, One of the greatest gifts that I ever received was the six-foot bookshelf, the Harvard Classics from my grandmother which was this compilation of the greatest works of literature and history. And Mortimer Adler uh, put together the great books series. I've got both of them. Sadly, they're in the garage just because I haven't, I'm, I don't have room for them yet uh, on the shelves in the back here. But uh, yeah, it, it, and then they also had, I also have the uh, like a Britannica edition of all these great American documents. And so, I think those those compilations are kind of like poppy history. they're really important. They've been somewhat criticized for kind of excluding a lot of things, obviously but sure when you when you see those works what what do you see is missing from those works because we've got everything from Aristotle to John Stuart Mill to Homer to you know all these different writings. And its build is this is the Western canon. This is what made right. Western right. literature. What do you what do you see is missing from the traditional canon in, in liberal arts?
1: Uh, so, well, I mean, I'm so I'm a fan of traditional liberal arts um, as we've come to understand them. Yeah, there's always going to be things that have been left out or are missing when you're talking about um, what what's the Western canon. Um, I think the criticism that it gets is, uh, is misapplied. I mean, any list is always going to be outdated. It's always going to be short-sighted or, um, you know, have blind spots from the standpoint of, I I use the trust as an example. We started, uh, acquiring these documents and we were very Americana centered founding period, um, Thomas Paine, John Locke, Jefferson, uh, Hamilton, things like that. But over the years, it's grown. So we have things in our collection that span, I think, like twelve languages, four different continents. We have things from Confucius. Um, we have, uh, you know, I'm trying to. I'm, I'm losing my train of thought here. And, and
0: let me, let me. So, so you've collected these works, but like when you say we've acquired this, like you don't mean that you printed it off of like a website and then put them in your own library. Like you've acquired the texts, uh, manuscripts in some cases, original manuscripts from people like Cicero, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, uh, mostly,
1: um, mostly printed works. So first editions of things like maybe the Federalist papers from 1788, we do have manuscripts of some of the ancients works, uh, we have an Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics manuscript. So it was handwritten, but it was written in the 1400s. So, I mean, it's not written by Aristotle or anything like that. Um, we have a 1300s manuscript of the Magna Carta. Um, and I, I kind of refer to it as the usual suspects. But yeah, they're, they're real first edition actual documents that are two, three, five, seven hundred 700 years old.
0: So, how did you start acquiring all this? Because when I first heard about it, when I was working at the Libertarian Party, was like, well, it's got to be just some eccentric billionaire in (laughs) Eastern Indiana that's acquiring all these things. Like, uh, and then I think I saw maybe the remnant on uh, the remnant trust on Glenn Beck. Or something really? yeah, he was talking about the manuscripts and maybe he had something on load. Maybe I'm I'm losing my mind, but
1: I don't think I I think Glenn has talked about certain things like that, but I've never heard of him talking okay. about
0: that. Well then but. I must be confused. But so who started collecting these manuscripts? How much does it cost to like do you raise money? Like it's Sure how how do you acquire something from Confucius or the or you know, manuscript of the Magna Carta that's 700 years old. Um, so,
1: yeah, good question. Um, eccentric, yes. Uh, billionaire, no. Um, so I would say that it, it all kind of got started by my father and my grandmother. Um, and as I'm told the story, you know, she was a Phi Bay Kappa in math and physics at the University of Chicago when girls weren't supposed to do that kind of thing. And it was it was definitely a brainchild of, of my dad's that we would go out and find these books and maybe we could use them and get people to engage with the ideas. And, you know, that got started by testing the market, going to big schools, small schools, talking to academics and, uh, and discussing it. But they, I mean, you know, you just start looking for these things. Now, 25 years ago, it wasn't quite as easy um, as it is to go online and just Google some, you know, uh, antiquarian book dealers but we worked with dealers in Philadelphia and New York to start with, and then that um, that network definitely grew over hmm. the years so that there's a there's a good cadre of dealers that know us and know what we're looking for. And we started with that list of a hundred so that gave us you know a, a, a lot of feelers out in the world. so right. people were aware of what we wanted and what we were looking for and yeah we we fundraise. I mean we we, uh, I mean, if there's one thing uh, occasionally I've I've gotten criticism about saying this, but um, oh, well, one of the things I'm the proudest of of the organization is that we didn't start with, you know, great grandpa's collection of books. We started with this idea of getting these books and sharing them with people. And um, we've been able to put together over 1500 documents like that, you know, in the last 2500, 25 years. So.
0: Yeah. So and the, the second question that I had in my mind when I heard about it was, do they have like a big fireproof safe in their house? <laughs> like, where do, where do you keep the books? I imagine, you don't just like, you know, like my books on the bookshelf back here, just throw them on the shelf. Right. Maybe in some cases you do. But how do you take care of these documents?
1: So, uh, yeah, where they're stored, they are in a climate controlled fire suppressed vault. Um, so they are they are locked and secured. So we don't have major issues like that. But also, one of the things that the trust does, which flies in the face of preserving it at all costs, is that we put them out into people's hands. Um, mm-hmm. We did an event this past October at the Columbia Club with George Will coming in and talking, and we had probably thirty five documents out so people could you know handle them, pick them up, take them out of the cases, you know take selfies with them, all all that kind of stuff, um, which is kind of a new phenomenon of late. But we do take precautions to preserve them and care for them and things like that. Um, I don't think that we've officially announced this yet, but like on the 12th of April, we're announcing uh, we have a partnership with the Indiana Historic Society and with the Columbia Club in downtown. So uh, the books will be housed in the vaults at the IHS um, and we will have uh, like executive offices at the Columbia club as well. So wow! operating in and about downtown.
0: Where are you located now?
1: Uh, I mean, that's where we are. We, we moved there in January, but of course did it quietly and, uh, you know, didn't announce the truck was pulling in with, um, some number of millions of dollars worth of books or something
0: like that. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, beforehand, did you and your, you know, did your dad start with this just like at his house? And like, did he, how did he take care of the books back in the beginning? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, in the, in the early days, we had a room that we controlled with, I think it was three humidifiers and dehumidifiers and two different air conditioning units. Wow. Um to, you know, to, to keep them as basically you want to keep them as cool as possible, or is this tolerable? And you want about 45% relative humidity are the best conditions for, hmm. for documents like this. So yeah, they were, uh, they were in a room um, in his office building at that time. Um, and then over the years, we've, uh, we've been at different places here and there. We were, uh, We were most recently had a partnership with Texas Tech. Um, and that agreement um, expired, and that's what led us to, uh, to move them back home to Indiana.
0: So tell us about this partnership with the Indiana Historical Society. Uh, sure, I am a member of IHS. I love what they do. Um, it's a big building downtown that has a lot of a lot of different projects that they work on in Indiana history. You know how did that come about? With this, it's a private foundation, right? A private.
1: Uh, well, yeah, so they're yeah. A private. Yeah, they're not a public entity. Um, they're you know they're supported privately. You know they have uh, they have members, they have donors, that, uh, they build their own endowment and things like that. Um, the you know, part of a conversation over the last couple of years, I would guess, um, we had this conversation started with the Columbia Club and some of the. Uh, I guess uh, leadership there. And also we had conversations with leadership at IHS and um, I don't know, a few months into it, it just kind of dawned on someone in the group that was like, well, it's not about one or the other. Why can't we do something here with everybody? And, you know the IHs provides obviously a fantastic facility with um, great staff that that knows how to deal with things. They provide some conservation op- opportunities as well. and they have you know a public mission, a public focus of what they do with their stuff. And this was a way to say, well, our things can be part of that as well. So, the documents that aren't traveling um, to schools or other exhibitions around the country or the world will be at IHS. The public will be able to come in and say, Hey, can I see that 1350 Magna Carta? Um, And if it's on site, you know, they have staff that will be able to bring that out and make it available to them. Um, And then with the Columbia club, it's, it's a similar kind of thing. I mean, while they are a private club, they have a public focus and a public mission and working with them using their um, like event facilities and catering and things like that that they have on hand to allow us to um, kind of be more in the driver's seat and and scale up the type of events and um, programming that we can offer.
0: yeah, the Columbia Club was founded by President Benjamin Harrison. It's right on the circle in downtown Indianapolis it's uh it's where Mark Rutherford taught me which forks to use and tried to culture me as I was a young bumpkin uh, Mark's from Plumfield. Good for that. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> we went to a fundraising dinner in like 2009. And granted, like, uh, you may know Abdul Hakeem Shabazz, another Columbia Club member who's part of the elite, the establishment here in town. And, you <laughs> know, went came to my first rehearsal dinner. My dad's just grabbing handfuls of calamari out of the community dish. Sure. And, you sure. know, that's those are the people I came from, and and so to go to the Columbia Club where you have to wear a suit, basically to go and and hang out, a tie or a jacket or whatever. It's not necessarily the uh, spangled crowd, um, but it's a it's a beautiful facility. It's part hotel, part gym, part restaurants, part meeting rooms. It's it's sure. uh, you know I've been to weddings there. I've been to all kinds of. It's just a really cool facility. So it's really neat to hear that you've got these documents out um you know but what is i'm i'm really passionate about history you know matt okay. matt, matt Taibbi just wrote this article about nine uh 19 uh the orwell novel 84 yeah 84 i almost said 82. um <laughs> i should read more i guess but no not at all
1: there's what? a follow-up to 1984 called 1985 really um yeah i've got actually it's I don't I, I can't think of who the author is off the top of my head but yeah and it's a somebody else wrote it as a sequel to 1984 Interesting. But that's, that's another conversation.
0: So you know and he talked about how everybody's kind of been pushed into two minutes hate mode and and he sort of meant it like the predatory left but let's be honest there's the you can't open your Facebook without seeing something about the trans swimmer and the rights version of t- Two Minutes Hate.
1: Oh, right. No, it's all—it's Twitter it, and Instagram. It's everywhere. It's right.
0: everywhere. And right. So we're, we're sort of forced into this, the present. And so what he was talking about is the point of the novel is that everybody's kind of pushed into the present and kind of kept off balance because they've got to choose which side or what's going on. And what I love about history is that and he also talks about how erasing history is really important. Erasing language, erasing history. Right. And both sides seem to be doing a lot of that. And when you, when you look back through history and you look at the long struggle to get to liberalism, classical liberalism, uh, democracy, representative democracy in our case, um, capitalism, that's what the history of modern politics is about, in my podcast. And, and it sounds like that's what, what you're about too, is like engaging in the past and remembering the struggle to get to these points. To sure, have absolutely. greater freedom is incredibly important.
1: Yeah, none of these ideas, the things that you just touched on, uh, I often talk about the people that I interact with, um, especially uh, younger generations. Uh, I guess I'll go with students, uh, think that democracy somehow sprang up out of the ground, fully formed in 1771, somewhere in Virginia, possibly, and um i appreciate the distinction you know we don't we don't have a democracy here that's not what we are it's not what we were set up to be and just that distinction is something that people um you know violently respond to depending upon what group you're in and which one of those statements you make you say that you're a democracy and you're surrounded by the right or you say that you're a represented a constitutional republic and you're on the left surrounded there both of them are not going to be happy with you, um, and the idea of looking at these documents, looking at the the development of them. I mean, this is a we talk about it as a timeline of liberty. Um, nothing that we're dealing with right now is new. <laughs> nothing, whether or whether it's Putin or a transgender this or any of that. None of these are new ideas. Uh, they're in new situations, but. I'm uh, right. I, so as a historian, as a, as a literature major and things like that, I think about the, this is the age old question of man. Um, we have always struggled with how we deal with each other. How do we show each other respect or not? Um, you know, as libertarians go, is it about, you know, uh, the initiation of force or not um, and what that line is and to understand why we got there and to, to do it in such a way to not act like we're in a vacuum, the two minutes of hate that you, that you reference, it's not something that happens right now. Um, It's formed and it's a culmination of what you've experienced and what we know from uh, what Hamilton and Madison and Jay wrote in the federalist about what the, the challenges of a constitution and a constitutional government would be. And at the same time, being aware that the anti-federalists were aware of what the threats are as well. That seems to be a big one that we're coming into now. And it would be nice to say that, oh, it's one side that does this, but it's not. Um, I think maybe naively in my youth, I thought it was more one-sided than the other, but it definitely seems today to be, you know, the both sides. It's all a matter of what they want to use their power for, um, not whether or not they should be, you know, making sweeping mandates that apply to
0: everybody. This is the older you get, the more uh uh Hayekian we become with our <laughs> like we have to, we have to balance all sides and right, um right. so I I guess w- when you ha- look at your mission, when you look at your value system, you know, I think you said freedom and dignity. Right.
1: Um, liberty and dignity lib-
0: liberty and dignity. So let's define those two words and, uh, and how did you arrive at those? Let's start that's, with liberty. Uh,
1: no, that's, that's, that's great. I think, um, so I will, I will work around what that liberty is. And I will tell you that a working definition of dignity is one of the things that I've struggled with, um, for 25 years. Uh, I, I gave a talk once and I had a guy, uh, ask a question say, oh, okay, you talk about this liberty and dignity stuff and that liberty stuff. That's all fine. I get that. I don't really care about that. What I care about is dignity. What's that mean? And this guy was a, was a therapist by trade, a, a family and, and a marriage therapist. And, and he was concerned about how people get treated, not about whether or not, you know, you have the freedom to walk out in the street with your pants down, but how we interact and deal with each other. And I think that this is going to be me dancing around dignity, right? It's about value. That's where it comes from, how we value each other. Um, what value you have and how we can demonstrate it and or respect it or allow it for each other. Um, to say that um, you're allowed to have an opinion and um, that, that doesn't mean that your opinion is you know, the, the same as someone who's educated in the field and, and has a better understanding. But it's about saying you can come in with that opinion and we can discuss it. I think it revolves for the trust a lot around the idea of civil discourse. Um, We talk about like this great conversation that we hope to engage people in. And that great conversation has to take place uh, with civility, with a, a common level of respect for each other that we can talk about things and we can disagree And we can, we can, you know, vigorously disagree. And at the end of it, we can theoretically shake hands and go about our business and say, you know, look, Chris, you're totally wrong on this. And I'm just not going to come around to that. But that doesn't mean that we hate each other or that we can't do business or that we can't sit down and have a conversation about it, maybe with a, a larger audience to get people to engage. Uh, the, that two minutes, the sound bites, the quick response, the knee-jerk reaction, the meme that we share, um, while memes, I think, are hilarious and, and tend to uh, you know, do what comedy and humor does, which is kind of poke at the really tender spots. Um, it doesn't get to the heart of it. It doesn't engage. In, it's, it's, it's exactly 1984. It's exactly the two minute soundbite. It overwrites what the past was, and it creates this new immediate thing. And the Remnant Trust wants people to, you know, more thoughtfully engage,
0: Well, I'm starting the remnant trust of memes. Uh, I hope I can get your support. Maybe I can get uh, the Indiana Historical Society to look at my uh, photos. No, I I, I totally agree. As much as I love a good meme and and we are libertarians in some ways was built and then destroyed by memes... I, I can't okay. I can't get uh, any reach on on some of these channels now because of uh, bleach beams I posted in 2020. Oh. You know, and it just shows you sort of like how temporary all this stuff is. Right. You know, but when, you know, as a content creator, the the hot take, the thing that your visceral gut reaction based on kind of what you've gleaned from f- scrolling Facebook is never nearly as beneficial to you or to your audience as sitting down and reading a book and then talking from that experienced place, uh, you know, and, and so when you look at your catalog and, and what you're trying to do, I mean, I, I, I really believe in what you're doing and what you're saying here. I think it's really um, in line with where I've ended up as as just like a, a political person, as a human being, and an, as a broadcaster. Um, ha, ha, like, cool, you've collected these manuscripts. Right. But I'm not I'm not going to get into the vault to sit down and for like I'm I'm kind of a slow reader. Right. They're not going to let me hang out in the vault and read this, you know, Confucius book that you collected or, uh, you know, so how do you get the information out into the world and how do people actually learn? Because if you got it in vaults, Chris, right? How how is that sparking the imagination of some students right. that's interacting?
1: Absolutely. With that? Absolutely. Uh, you know, us having a collection doesn't really distinguish us in 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 many ways or in any way from other places around the world. Um, and what we do is different, is that we take it out. It's not in vaults. We have uh, we have like 50 books at Clemson University right now in their library, um, the students and faculty, their classes, they're using them, they have access to them. Same thing at Troy University in Alabama um, and at, at Middle Tennessee. And then beyond that, I mean, I think that the the deeper question that you're talking about is um, is something that the trust has, I don't know, struggled with and considered and contemplated, and been aware of, is that this is um, these old books, these original first editions, are like the catalyst. Um, they are we hope the spark that gets people to engage and say, okay, this is yeah, I want I want to really read more of this. Um, we talk about what Federalists. 10 and federalist 50 every four years when we have a national election but otherwise we don't discuss it much we don't think about it very often so um we've looked into and are looking into the idea of digitizing to have you know inexpensive reprints or to have scans available you know dissemination on the internet that kind of thing so that they're accessible but i think what um the main thing that we try to accomplish again is, is that spark, try to be the key that gets into someone's head and opens things up a little bit, um, to, uh, to think further about it. And the breadth of the collection, I hope adds to that. I think that the, it's not just, um, the names you've always heard of. I think that there are new things in that collection that get us to think about those ideas more deeply, uh, There's a, a, in in the 1300s, there was a guy called Marsilius of Padua, who wrote a a book called The Defense of Peace, uh, Defense Orpacus. And what I understand, research says that he's the first guy to ever write about the idea of the separation of church and state and what that would mean. And so we're talking from the 1300s. This gets printed in Latin. I think ours is a 1523 edition. And um, the, again, to establish that there are, there's a connection to these ideas, um, church and state, you know, makes me think of the founding period. And again, in the 1700s, that idea didn't just jump up out of the ground. Obviously, the Pilgrims in the 1600s were concerned about that. You know, that's why they were, um, you know, moving and trying to find uh, a place with more freedom and more liberty for them to to worship as they saw fit. Um, but but it's difficult, right? It, it, it's something that just that exposure to an old book, um, is it's where it starts. And that next step that you're talking about is, yeah, you can go through your timeline on Facebook, um, or any of the other platforms. And that doesn't really help you. And, and what, what needs to happen is that people need to take that time. Even if they just go through that timeline and then they turn the, the screen off and they sit down and just, think about what those issues are, what, what's being brought up. You point to one of the, one of the great things to do is yeah. Read, 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 if, read, if books, you read, read books I, that you've heard of, read books that uh, by people that they told you not to read them. Um, you know, th- all of that is, is there for us to understand. It's uh, I mean, again, it goes to the meme. It's the geez, if only there was a device that would allow us to access all of human knowledge this time. And of course we all have one in our pocket. Um, but sitting down and, and thinking those hard, deep, arduous, difficult ideas. And, and, you know, you don't do that in a bubble. You talk about it with your friends. You, you discuss it with your family. You, uh, you know, you throw it out there at those bigger group meetings when you can get feedback from someone who you think might be insightful or might have some wisdom to share with you. It's, uh. You don't walk into um, a Remnant Trust exhibition and pick up, uh, let me think of something, just uh, a, Thomas Paine's Common Sense, first edition from 1776. You don't pick that up, and a magic fairy comes out and hits you on the head, and all of a sudden you understand everything.
0: But um, you're aware of it. You have right, awareness. Right. Yeah. Well, all I heard is you just talking about a bunch of dead white guys. Uh, how, okay, how so, you know let's come at it from I'm that angle. I mean sure. how how do you fight that notion that just history is just a bunch of dead white guys and it's all irrelevant? These were all stories. so
1: history is a bunch of dead white dead, a bunch of dead white people. It's also a bunch of dead non-white people. Um it is uh, something that comes up, right, that, that people point that out. And I say things like we have you know, Frederick Douglass in the collection. We have all three of his, um, his autobiographies in the collection, um, some other documents from him. We have pieces from Booker T. Washington. We have, let's see, Uncle Tom's Cabin and The Dismal Swamp, both by Harriet, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe. We have things by Catherine Beecher, her sister, Um, who was much more a violent abolitionist um, than, uh, than Harriet was, Um, you know, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft uh, was a contemporary of Thomas Paine. So I I referenced that uh, Paine's common sense. When Edmund Burke wrote reflections on the revolution in France, uh, Paine responded with the rights of man. Um, That's about 1792. And in response to that, Mary Wollstonecraft wrote her vindication of the rights of men. Um, She and uh, she and Payne knew each other, um, you know, sat at dinner parties to near each other and and talked about these things. Um, We are by no means or the remnant trust by no means says that dead white men are the ones that understand everything. What we say is these are people who have written about these ideas. When someone comes to me and says, hey, that's great, but how come you don't have whatever? Um, if it fits in our criteria, which generally we try to stay out of the 20th century. Um, but it's things like Mary Wollstonecraft. I had never heard of her um, with a bachelor's a master's degree in American lit um, until you know I was some years into working with the remnant Trust. Um, that list of a hundred after we acquired that's why we have 1557 volumes in the collection because Confucius was brought to our attention and the Bhagavad Gita was brought to our attention and uh, the Quran was brought to our attention. I mean, obviously that's not brought to our attention. You're
0: going through a learning process. Like a lot of us are.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why, uh, like when you say the thing about the Western canon or anything like that, you want to look at anybody's list of anything. And it's one of the great things about lists is that they're fun to dispute. They're fun (laughs) to poke holes in. Um, This is a place for people to start. Um, I don't think that you can dispute that in this collection, um, you know, with these authors and many more that we haven't touched on. That's where some of this conversation takes place. That's where these ideas uh, get beat around, and they get beat up, and they get tested, you know, with, with blood, sweat, and tears. And sometimes that's vindicated, and sometimes it's not. And you see changes um, in how people interact. But again, this is, this is a place to start. This is obviously the trust and its board thinks that this is a, a reasonably good collection to get people to engage with the idea.
0: Yeah, I I like that. I think a lot of us are just on a, a, on a learning curve. And I think the, the movement for inclusion is good. Diversity is good because it, it is forcing people like myself to go, okay, where are my blind spots? But I don't think that that means we have to dismiss, you know, an entire body of work either. I think. You know, that, that's where it comes down. Why don't you recruit from the 20th century? Is it just still too contentious? Is there too much of it? What was the... That's
1: the, that's the theory. So, um... I, and, and so I, I say it a bit, bit tongue in cheek. So, yeah, we, we started out saying that we would start at 1900 and go back. Mm. That We'd stay out of the 20th century. You don't have enough time to judge, don't have enough distance. There's too much ego. There's it's just too. And of course, we we kind of set that up as a rule and then immediately broke it and added 1984 Animal Farm and Atlas Shrugged to the collection.
0: Any Mankin, so you know. H.L. Mankin? Yeah. Uh, No, not yet.
1: Please. I want a
0: selfie with it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But um, it's also something that that's evolved for us as well. Um, I now describe it as kind of like a sliding hundred year gap. Um, So, uh, you know, early 20s uh, through 1920, that kind of thing is what we're looking at. And we have. Um, you know, not part of the main collection, but we have started to put, keep an eye towards 20th century authors and books and works that we think might be part of that eventually. Um, It's, uh, you know, Rand and 1984 are things that you could point to. And, you know, it seems reasonable to say that those may withstand the test of time for some amount of time. We could be wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, I don't know what would happen to say that those are no longer, uh, reasonable to consider um, the impact of of those works seems to be pretty far reaching and is a touchstone even if people you know vigorously disagree with it
0: do you have a favorite
1: <laughs> from the whole collection
0: yeah i mean that's like asking your favorite kids i mean i have a favorite yeah. kid but i'm sure you know but yeah
1: uh, after you're parent long enough you'll be able to say which one's your favorite <laughs> 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 um so I have two. I have two kind of fun stories. So they will maybe qualify as a favorite. Um, early on in uh, in my work with the trust, so after I after I got out of grad school, um, my dad and I were at an antique show in Chicago at the Rosemont, and it was mostly just antiques, but there happened to be a few book dealers there as well, and. I was looking at this one guy's table and he didn't have maybe 10, 12 books. And I picked it up. Inside the front cover, something was written in pencil. And I read that and I put it back down and put my hand very firmly on top of it and got the guy's attention and kind of talked to him and explained that you don't know me from anybody. I know a few of your colleagues. I can give you references and things like that. But I would like to, you know. If you if you talk to people and think it's OK, I'd like to take this book with me and I'll pay you if it's what I think it is. Um, and he made a phone call and got that all worked out and we left with it and uh, work with various you know antiquarian depositories and things like that. Things like Lily in, uh, down at IU. And this was Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica, the, uh, printed in about in 1475. Wow. And Aquinas was trying to sum, summarize all of theology at that time. So, you know, nice little easy task. And this was at that time, there were two known copies in the world.
0: Hmm.
1: And this was the third. Um there was one at the British Museum. There's one at the Newbury in Chicago, and there's the one that's in the collection of the Remnant Trust.
0: How? So, so forgive me. Was it was at a book fair, yeah. or, or was it a de- like a, a shop? And you just
1: it was it was uh, so somewhere between a book fair and an antique show.
0: That's just so crazy. It, was, that-
1: <laughs> it it was just you know there were maybe a dozen book dealers there um, as part of what was mainly an antique show. And yeah, he just, that was one of the books he had on his table. That's what Um, I love
0: about books and printed material. You know, how many hard drives have you had? And how many hard drives do you get out and look at and photos and, you know, and even my Kindle, it's just so hard to like, I read on my Kindle almost exclusively anymore, but it's so hard to like, if summarize it, like, and it's not going to last, but then this book printed in 1470 makes its way to Cincinnati where it's picked up at a book fair. It's just, it's it's a yep. near permanence in so many cases it's unbelievable oh, absolutely
1: and there's something to that the physicality the actual book as an object and you've touched on something that so it's it's 500 years old it's it's 500 almost 50 years old and whose hands has it gone through in those 500 years would it have gone through someone's hands that we we recognize the name of yeah um, was it in a, in a location, in a church, in a monastery? Was it in a library that we would know? And you're right. There is something – that's something you can't do with the Kindle, right? You can't you can't have that experience with the iPad. Um, and I, I love technology. I'm a huge nerd. But there is something about that book as an object. And, uh, again, that, that's part of that experience. I think that's one of those things that I can't quantify – uh, to someone other than say, you know, you, you have to have that experience, uh, wherever you have it. Um, generally, I say you should have that with the Remnant Trust somewhere, and you'll get to put some of these books in your hands and
0: see what that's like. Yeah, it's just that's incredible to think, you know, was it, it came over in the Mayflower? Or like, you know, <laughs> right, like, right? Just wild. Uh, All right. Well, how can people support you? I know you've got an event coming up. Where can people, you know, sure. shameless self-promotion time, Chris.
1: Sure. I, I, and I appreciate that. Absolutely. So we have an event coming up at the Columbia Club May 3rd and 4th. We're bringing in uh, Robert Woodson from the 1776 Unites program. Um, he's going to be in and do a keynote speech on the 3rd. Um, uh, you know, kind of a fundraiser, obviously. Uh, we're uh, selling tables and tickets and things like that. You can find that at remnanttrustevents.com, and um, then beyond that, we're a 501c3 tax exempt entity. You know, donations are always appreciated um, to support our mission. You can be in touch with us on all the social media platforms. Um, I don't know if that's sadly or not, but on the social media platforms, um, Send uh, contact us through our website, which is com, and uh, sign up for a newsletter, ask us questions, find out where we are, what books are going, where, and things like that.
0: All right, Chris Becks of The Remnant Trust, thank you so much. RemnantTrustEvents.com, check out that event here in Indianapolis, or check out their website. They've got all kinds of cool stuff there. I was looking at it a little bit earlier. Really neat organization. Thank you so much for sharing.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Chris.